Well, good morning. Good to see you all. We are continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. August 16th, 2001 was one of the most exciting days of my life. It's the day that I turned 16, which meant it was the day that I got my driver's license. And this was incredibly exciting because for, for a number of months prior to getting my license, I had my learner's permit. And this means that this meant that I had to drive everywhere with my dad, right? Every teenager's dream, drive around with your parents in, your, in the car with you. And so during those, during those several months though that I had my permit, my dad taught me how to drive. And it was great. I had this little 1990 Honda Civic. It was the DX model. If you don't know what that is, that's like the most stripped down car you can possibly get. There was not even a clock in my Civic. No clock, there was no power anything back then in 1990, right? And so I had uh, manual door locks, windows, the whole deal. There was no airbags. I'm surprised this thing actually had seat belts, honestly. Like, but this thing was fun to drive. It was like a go-kart with a roof. Today, we would consider it a death trap. There's no way that, that you would be driving this around today. And I thought I'd show you guys a picture of it. Pulling up here. There I am, 16. That's August 16th, 2001. That's what I looked like during puberty. Um, didn't have a beard yet. And there is the blue 1990 Civic DX. It was an exciting day. But I remember that leading up to that moment when I got my driver's license, the whole time I had my permit, my mom refused to ride in the car with me. She refused to drive with me. She was like, you know what? That's your dad's job. I'm leaving that to your dad. He's gonna teach you how to drive. But here's the thing about my mom. She knew the risk of driving, especially teenagers driving. She knew that it's dangerous to be out on the roads. It's dangerous to be in the world. And so me getting my license meant that I was at risk. It put me at risk. Well, similarly, today, as we look at our passage in John 17, the disciples are at risk. And Jesus knows this. And what Jesus knows is he knows he's going to the Father. He says, Father, I'm coming to you, which means he's no longer going to be with the disciples. And he knows they're at risk because the same world that hates Jesus now hates the disciples. But yet the disciples are being sent into the world with all of its hostility. And so the disciples are at risk. What will Jesus do for the disciples while they're at risk? If you pick up with me in John 17, verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, Father, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What will Jesus do for his disciples? He prays. He prays for the disciples knowing that they're at risk. And this conversation that Jesus is having with the father is filled with emotion. Jesus is pouring out his heart for his followers, for the disciples, the ones that he loves. So this is filled with emotion. Jesus is not just talking to the father, but he's pleading with him. He's begging with him to do these things. And in this prayer, the first thing that we see Jesus saying is that you need a seatbelt. You need a seatbelt. Jesus prays that the Father will protect you as you are in the world. We see this with the language where Jesus says, Father, keep them in your name. This is referring to protection. Just as Father, protect them, preserve them. Jesus is asking that the Father will keep the disciples close to him, that the disciples will remain connected to him because the Father keeps them connected to him. Jesus wants the disciples in the Father's hands, under his watch, in his care. And the reason why is because Jesus doesn't want them to be lost because the world's character threatens their fidelity to him. And so the disciples need protection. But what exactly do the disciples need to be protected from? Jesus says they need to be protected from the world. But that can be confusing because in the Bible, the world means different things. And so what Jesus is not talking about here is he's not talking about the good physical creation, not talking about the physical world. Jesus is also not talking about humanity. Like in John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Jesus isn't talking about that either. What he's talking about, he's referring to the world in its sense that the world means the values and patterns of society that are organized against God. Simply put, This is when sin becomes normative. The world is opposed to God. The world rebels against God. The world is Satan's domain. It's the very reason why in scripture, Satan is called the ruler of the world. This world hates Jesus and now hates the disciples. And so they need to be protected from this world. And we see here the reason why. In verse 11 and in verse 13, Jesus says, Father, I am coming to you. He's going to the Father. Jesus is pleading with the Father and he's begging the Father because he knows that when he goes to be with the Father, he will no longer be physically in the world with the disciples. And he doesn't want them to be lost. He doesn't want them to drift. He doesn't want them to compromise in the midst of the world. And so he surrenders them to the Father. 
See, when I got my driver's license, that picture when I was 16, right? That's on the day I got my driver's license that I'm putting the the keys in the door. See, that meant that I got to drive on my own for the first time. I didn't have my parents with me in the car anymore. So my parents weren't able to physically be in the car with me. And here's what I know. My mom told me a while ago, uh, she said, when you got your driver's license, we used to pray for you like crazy. They would pray for me like crazy because I was out in the world, but they didn't want the world getting in me. They would pray for me like crazy because they wanted me to be protected, but they couldn't be with me. It's the reason why for months before I got my license, my parents literally told me hundreds and hundreds of times, John, you need to wear a seatbelt. You need to wear your seatbelt. And they got me in this habit. It's actually a pretty good habit um, where they said, hey, the first thing you do when you get in the car before you put the keys in the ignition is you put on your seatbelt because you need to wear it. And so now I'm 16 years old out driving in the world and my parents are at home wondering, is he wearing his seatbelt? What will influence him as he drives? What will distract him as he drives? Because my parents were well aware of the threats out in the world as I was driving. But that driver's license symbolized something. It symbolized their inability to protect me because they couldn't be with me. And so what do they do? They prayed for me. They entrusted me to the Father to trust that the Father would protect me. See, that's Jesus' heart here for the disciples. As he's praying to God, he's begging God, Father, keep them. Please protect them. I don't want any of them to be lost. I don't want them to drift away from me. And in my absence, as I'm with you, I want you to protect them. Father, would you be their seatbelt? Would you keep them close? Would you keep them near? Because Jesus knows they need a seatbelt as they get sent out into the world for their protection. What if you could listen into the room where Jesus was praying for you? What do you think he'd pray for you? If you could listen into the room where Jesus is praying for you, what do you think he'd be praying? This prayer that Jesus prays for the disciples is not just for the disciples back then, but this is his prayer for you. This is what Jesus is praying for us, followers of Jesus today. Jesus is praying for your protection. Jesus is praying for your preservation. Jesus is praying that the perfect father would watch over you and that the father would be your seatbelt that he would keep you near, that he would keep you connected to him as you live in the world with all of its hostility, that the father would keep you. 
This gives you assurance. That gives us assurance. And this is good news because what it means is that you are not protected by your own power. You don't even have the ability to keep yourself. But what it means is that you are protected by the very power of God. He is the one who holds you. He is the one who keeps you close so that you are not lost. Your salvation is secure because the Father holds you as you live in the world. Jesus continues to pray. He continues to pray for the disciples here. In verse 14, he says, Father, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the second thing that Jesus is saying as he prays to the Father, he says, be like balsamic. You heard me right. Be like balsamic. This is one of those Josh Butler moments. If he's preaching, he's going to say, hey, turn to your neighbor and say, be like balsamic. But I'm not going to make you guys do that. Be like balsamic. Jesus wants you in the world, but he doesn't want the world in you. And so Jesus is saying that, Father, leave them in the world. Don't take them out of the world. I want these disciples to remain in the world, to be in the world. I don't want them to withdraw from it, but my prayer is that they would maintain their allegiance to me and that they wouldn't drift. They wouldn't compromise in the midst of the world. He wants the disciples to resist the normative sinful patterns of the world. He wants the disciples to resist the enticements of the world. He wants the disciples to be able to resist the temptation from the evil one. See, the very reason why Jesus wants them to be in the world is that this is the very place in which they will live out their faith. He wants them to be left in the world because this is where they will live out their Christianity. But Jesus doesn't want the world getting into them. Which makes us ask this question, well, what does it look like to be a Christian in the world? How should we live as Christians in the world? This is a question that every one of us who follows Jesus has to ask. And it's an important question because there are different postures and there's different approaches. And there's kind of like a a spectrum of how should we live in the world as followers of Jesus? And at one end of the spectrum over here, you've got the eject button. That's the, hey, we're gonna hit the eject button. This is kind of the holy roller mentality, the fortress mentality where it's like, hey, even though Jesus prayed that we would remain in the world and he asked the father specifically not to take us out, maybe he was wrong and we still need to get out of here, right? And so like, let's hunker down, let's get out of the world. And so you've got one posture, which is the eject button. But then over here, you've got another posture. This would be the drunk evangelist. 
okay? And the drunk evangelist over here says, hey, I know we're supposed to be uh, left in the world, but you know, we should, we should probably participate in some of the things that the world's doing. And so all of a sudden then it's like, hey, you know what? Um, we're gonna get a little bit of the world in us, but that's okay because it's all about grace, right? Jesus doesn't really care about that. And so we're gonna get hammered and then we're gonna tell people about Jesus. And so you've got the drunk evangelist over here which is, hey, we're gonna get the world in us. But Jesus' prayer here challenges the eject button and challenges the drunk evangelist. Jesus says no to both of them. See, his prayer gives us a different posture. It gives us a different way to live because Jesus specifically says, Father, don't take them out of the world. And so he says, don't hit the eject button. But he also says, Father, I want them to not be of the world just as I am not of the world, which means he says no to the drunk evangelist. Jesus creates a different way for us to live that is distinctive. He gives us this distinctive way of life, a different way of, li- a different way of living that we would be a distinct people who follow the way of Jesus and the way of his kingdom as we live in the world, that we would be faithful. Jesus wants you in the world, but he doesn't want the world in you. It's like when I go to an Italian restaurant or a wood fire pizza place, and they bring out like the warm bread before your food comes. And with it, they bring a plate of olive oil with balsamic vinegar. And then they will put the balsamic in the plate of olive oil, right? It looks something like this. Okay, so you've got the olive oil and the balsamic gets poured into the olive oil. But here's what I love about balsamic is that balsamic remains distinct, that it gets put into the olive oil, it's surrounded by the olive oil, but it remains distinct. And no matter how hard you try to shake them up, no matter how much you stir them or mix them, olive oil and balsamic will always separate. The balsamic can be swimming in the olive oil, but yet it's distinctively different. This is a picture of how we should live in the world that as we swim in the world of olive oil, we are distinct. Jesus wants you to be like balsamic. Church, Jesus doesn't want the world in you. He wants you to be like balsamic. But if we're honest, the problem is the ways of the world are powerful and they shape us and they get in us. If we're honest, we all have a little bit of the world in us, maybe even a lot of the world in us. And these are not just our behaviors. It's easy to think that automatically, but these aren't just our behaviors. This is the way we think. This is the way we feel and our emotions. This is our beliefs. The world shapes us. Here are some of the ways that the world has shaped you. The way of the world says that your value is measured by how many people like you. But Jesus says that your value comes from the love of the father. The way of the world says, live for yourself. 
But Jesus says, give of yourself and invites you to live with him and for him. The way of the world says that image is everything, that your worth comes from how you look. But Jesus says, no, your worth comes from how the father looks at you. The way of the world, the list goes on and on and on that these things get in us. The world gets in us and it powerfully shapes us. See, when I got my driver's license, it was crazy how fast the way of the world got into me. Right? It was crazy how fast uh, my driving changed, how other drivers shaped the way that I drove, the pressure that I faced, or the influence of my friends, it began to shape the way that I drove. And it didn't matter what my dad taught me for however many hours I clocked during my learner's permit with him, right? All of those months, my dad's teaching me what to do and what not to do. And then you get out there in the world and all of a sudden, whoa, I start doing things different than what my dad taught me. He never taught me how to do this. And it wasn't long before I got my first speeding ticket. Here it is, my first photo radar, city of Scottsdale. There's that Civic, 1990 Civic right there. And my, my beetle hair, um, if you're wondering in that bottom left corner, um, Man, city of Scottsdale, the photo radar van was hidden in a bush. That's not even fair, right? <laughs> hidden in a bush, got me. My dad didn't teach me to speed. Well, the first time I got pulled over by a police officer, it was for running a red light. Or the best in that 1990 Civic, that little go-kart with a roof. My dad didn't teach me how to pull donuts, right? Rip donuts. But man, you go in a cul-de-sac at about 20, 25 and the e-brake's in the center console and you pull the e-brake and you just start doing donuts. It was a blast, best part of that car. My dad didn't teach me that, my friends did. Or road rage. My dad didn't teach me about road rage, but it wasn't long before people started making me mad and you give them the bird, you know, you show them what's up. And don't worry, it's before I followed Jesus. And so I learned how to drive in the world because of the ways of the world, not because of how my father taught me. Jesus doesn't want the world in you, church. But you need resilience from him in order to live a distinctive life so that you can be like Balsamic. Jesus continues, he has a third request that he's pleading with the Father for in verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The third thing that we see Jesus saying here as he prays is to live as a mirror. To live as a mirror. Jesus wants to make you like him so you reflect him to the world. And so his prayer, he asks, the Father specifically sanctify them. This is a prayer for holiness. He prays that the Father would make them 
holy. That the disciples would reflect the character of God to the world. His desire is that they would become like him, that they would act as mirrors, that they would be mirrors who reflect the beauty and goodness of God to others. And Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, by the truth, because Jesus knows the power of lies. He knows the power of deception, that it is through lies that sin came into the world in the first place. And yet Jesus knows the power of truth, that truth is what redeems. Truth is what he is praying would make the disciples holy. Holiness is living the truth. Holiness is living the truth and embodying the truth. And what Jesus wants is for these disciples to be mirrors in the world who love what God loves, who think the thoughts of God, who live in conformity to his ways in the world. And by living the truth, they will accurately reflect God to the world. But if we're honest, again, when we talk about holiness, it's easy for us to think, eh, holiness doesn't matter all that much. Like God's holy and I know that, that's, that's about all I need. Or if we think that it matters, we kind of think like, ah, it doesn't really matter in certain parts of my life. Now, I found this to be true a number of years ago for myself, I was a hairdresser for 17 years and I was a small business owner. I owned my, my own business. And early on in that journey of becoming self-employed in the hair industry, what ended up happening was I went out on my own, started my own business. And a lot of my friends had been in, in it longer. A lot of people in the hair industry that I knew. And so they began to encourage me. They're like, hey man, this is pretty cool. You can, you know, do things under the table. You don't have to really claim everything you make. Um, there's ways that you can save on taxes because self-employment taxes, you get hit. And I was like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Sounds cool, you know? Um, and then they're like, hey, we'll even show you how to do it. Kind of coached me, right? Essentially, AKA, they coached me on how to cheat on my taxes. And we'll just call it what it is, right? Um, and so, it was interesting though, because I, find, I found myself falling into that, right? All of a sudden it was like, wow, everybody around me is doing this. This is like what everybody does in the industry. And so I begin to be able to even justify it. If everyone else is doing it, like, yeah, this is fine. I can do this too. And then, you know, you gotta, you gotta put a little Jesus on top to make everything, everything okay when you're justifying it. And so I'm like, hey, you know, I know Jesus says like, give to Caesar what's owed to him. But man, if I like cut some corners on my taxes, it just gives me more money that I can tithe to the church, right? Like I can give more money to God. I think Jesus is cool with that. Wouldn't he rather me give money to the church than to the government? And so I fell into that. And disclaimer, just so you know, I'm good with the IRS now, okay? You're not gonna see the pastor on the news for tax evasion going to prison. I'm good with the IRS. But I share that because the Holy Spirit convicted me that this was actually an area of my life that Jesus did care about. 
and he cared about it because I was not reflecting the character of God accurately. I was not living the truth, but I was being deceptive. The problem was that I was living in the world and the world had gotten into me. And what that caused was it prevented me from being a mirror that accurately reflected the character of God to others. And I actually became one of those funhouse circus mirrors that distorts the image. The circus mirror that doesn't accurately reflect the image, but it actually distorts the image. And I distorted the reflection of God by doing that. Church, Jesus cares about your holiness. He doesn't want you to be the distorted image. He doesn't want you to be the circus mirror. He wants you to be a mirror that accurately reflects his character. And this morning, Jesus wants to make you holy. See, and as a church, we are pretty good about being in the world. We believe all of life is for Jesus. We believe that mission is not just something we do, but it's our identity and we participate in God's mission in the world and our everyday life. Yes and amen to that. That's what Jesus wants. That's why he's left us here in the world. But if I'm honest and if we can just be honest, I think it's way harder for us not to have the world in us. I mean, it's, we're, we're pretty good about being out in the world, but when it comes to the world getting in us, I think this is a difficulty for us. And that's something that Jesus wants to address this morning. Today, Jesus wants to make you holy, which means he wants to set you apart. He wants to make you distinct, to be a distinctive people. He wants you to be a mirror that accurately reflects who he is to the world because your holiness is not just for yourself. Your holiness is for the sake of the world. And I think it's sad, the number of non-Christians that I know personally and who I've talked to over the years who are absolutely opposed to the truth of God and Christianity. And it's not because of what we believe. It's not because of our doctrine. But from talking to them, the reason why they're opposed to the truth of God is because they have seen so many distorted reflections of God by his people. They have seen so many circus mirrors that they haven't seen an accurate reflection of God. And so therefore they say, no, they don't want any of it. So I think when we talk about sin, it's easy for us to go to the what without looking at the why and hitting on the why. See, the reason why Jesus doesn't want you to cheat on your taxes is because it's, a live, it's living a lie about the integrity and trustworthiness of God and the world is watching. The reason why Jesus doesn't want you to watch pornography is because it's living a lie about the dignity and value of women who God has created in his image and the world is watching us. 
The reason why Jesus doesn't want you to explode in anger at other people is because it's living a lie about the patience and loving kindness and gentleness of God. And the world is watching. And we could continue that list. Church, the world has gotten into us. But Jesus wants to make you holy so that you can live the truth for the sake of the world. And so my question for you this morning is what are the patterns, what are the behaviors in your life that do not accurately reflect the character of God? What are the patterns or behaviors in your life that don't accurately reflect the character of God? I believe that Jesus is speaking and wants to reveal those things to us this morning and wants to convict us and wants to invite us to himself. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a moment and pause and I want to invite you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, what are the patterns or behaviors in my life? I believe that the Spirit will reveal that to you. And so let's take a moment and pray. whatever those areas are that the Spirit is revealing to you. Jesus wants you to bring those areas of your life to him this morning. He wants you to surrender those parts of your life to him. He wants you to repent of your sin. He wants you to turn from the things that are deadening your heart towards him. He wants you to turn from the things that are causing you to distort the beauty and truth and goodness of God. And this is the beauty of the gospel though. The beauty of the gospel is that your sin does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. The blood of Jesus covers your sin. And so Jesus is inviting you this morning to bring those things to him and let him pronounce the last word over your sin. Church, the reason you've experienced salvation is because Jesus was in the world, but the world wasn't in him. And so as we come to a close this morning and as we come to communion, it is through Christ's body given and his blood shed that we are washed, that we are cleansed so that we can be a holy people 
The only way that we can be the people that God calls us to be is through these elements as we celebrate. And so in a moment here, after we pray, when we take communion, I wanna invite you to celebrate. I wanna invite you to bring your sin to Jesus, to lay it bare at the foot of the cross and experience the beauty of his grace this morning. And so the bread represents Christ's body freely given for us and the wine or the juice represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you not only for your word, but Jesus, we thank you for your prayer. We thank you that you plead not just for these disciples, but Jesus, you are praying this prayer even for us. Lord, that you care. Jesus, that you are praying for our protection, that the Father would be our seatbelt as we drive in this world. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us and given us a vision of a distinctive way of life that we could be like balsamic. Jesus, that you want us in the world, but you don't want the world in us, and yet you give us the power of your spirit so that we can live faithfully. And Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that we get the great privilege of being a mirror to reflect your character to the watching world. Jesus, that you entrust us with that, that you call us to that, that you give us your spirit so that we can do that. But Lord, I pray that you would be convicting us this morning for the ways, Lord, that our lives do not accurately reflect your character. Jesus, that we would repent, that we would experience the beauty of your grace this morning. Lord, that our holiness matters because it's not just for our sake, but it's for the sake of the world who are watching. And so Jesus, we ask that your spirit would be moving in this place. Lord, as we respond to you, Lord, I pray that we would sing loud because you are worthy of our praise. It's in your name, amen.